This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Well, let's hope I can galvanize you all this morning. You might have seen I was just conferring with uh, Shadapa there about a date for the sutra. <clears throat> and uh, I must say I'm really, really pleased to be collaborating with Shadapa again. Uh, we collaborated on a book a few years ago called Great Faith, Great Wisdom, in which Shadapa translated the three Pure Land Sutras from Sanskrit and Chinese into English. And uh, I wrote a commentary on them. And that was, that was really, really good, uh, good thing to do. And uh, when um, Sanganista wrote to me last year asking me if I'd lead this retreat, I wanted to immediately, and I immediately thought of Shraddhapa. And I thought, it's really time we had a new translation of this text. It's, it's become such an important text for our movement and our order that we need a new translation. So I wrote to Shraddhapa and he said, yes, you do that, and... So here we have it, and uh, I'm so pleased to have this new translation by a member of our order on such a key text for our movement. Um, as I said last night, I, I've been around for about 44 years now, and I was ordained 42 years ago last week. I was at Adistana last week, and uh, on the 12th of June, I had my private ordination ceremony on the public public ordination ceremony along with Pavavajra quite close to here um, and uh, when Banti gave me my name all I heard was Ratnaguna, I didn't know about this text, it was only soon afterwards my Kalyanamitra Sagamati came up to me and he said oh that's a great name you've got because that's the Ratnaguna is a really important Mahayana text. So I was very pleased about that. So of course I looked it up. And I've lived with this text for 42 years. Although I haven't really studied it properly until recently. In fact, in the last few weeks and months, uh, I've started turning my mind to the text, knowing that I'd be giving these talks. So... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased. And I, in a way, uh, we're making a little bit of history, I think, uh, these few days, because we've got this new translation by Shodapa. And I think it's so important that we have translations by members of the order who, who know us, who know the movement, who know what we're trying to do, what the whole project that we're engaged in, and who can translate into into the kind of English that we will understand, rather than sometimes you read a translation and the translation is in itself difficult, let alone the original text. You think, what's this word mean? But with Shraddha, he uses the kinds of words that we're all familiar with, and it makes it a much more Tri Ratna friendly um, text to read. Um, so yeah, I was ordained in seventy six. Uh, with the name Ratnaguna and uh, very soon after that it was June 76 and very soon after that Bhante Sangrachta led a seminar on the first two chapters of the Ratnaguna's Samjaya for some reason he didn't invite me on that seminar I don't know why but uh, 
when um, soon after that seminar, the the effect it had on the movement was huge. Um, I'll tell you more about that. I think in the third talk, it really had a very big effect on our movement. Um, but anyway, um, it's now been made into a book. There's a book called Wisdom Beyond Words, which is Sangharakshita's commentary on the Heart Sutra, the Diamond Sutra, and the first two chapters of the Ratnaguna Samchayagata. Um, so uh, do look that up when you leave here. Uh, the, the last part of the book is on the Ratnaguna Samchayagata, and Bant says many wonderful things. I'm not going to say more, very much of what Banti said in that seminar because um, uh, you can read that. And so what I've done this time is I've looked at the text and tried to understand it. And so I'm going to give you my understanding of the text. Um, obviously, hugely influenced by Sankarachita because he's my teacher and I'm his disciple. But still I've tried to look at the text afresh to try to understand exactly what it's trying to tell me. Um, now the Ratnaguna Samsayagata is coupled with another Mahayana Sutra called, this is another thing I was trying to get from um, Shadapa just then, the, the, the pronunciation, which I'm sure I haven't quite got, it's the Asta Sahasrika, something like that, which is translated into English as the perfection of wisdom in 8,000 lines, which is a much bigger, longer sutra than the Ratnaguna Samchayagata. And uh, scholars are divided about their, uh, how they connect. Uh, some scholars, Konsit included, um, think that although the Ratnaguna Samchayagata is often called a verse summary of the Asta, uh, some people, Konsu included, think it, it, the, the Ratnaguna was the, the original text um, and the Asta was um, an explanation or commentary on the text. Um, so we don't really know which way round it is. I'm not sure there'll ever be a way to find out. But anyway, they're, they're very much connected and sometimes uh, during my talks, not today, but the next few days, I'll be referring to the relevant parts of the Asta um, and how that, because that sometimes that throws light on the Ratnaguna Samchayagata. The Ratnaguna Samchayagata is in verse, and in verse you have to really compress your meaning, and sometimes that makes the meaning quite hard to tease out. And sometimes the the prose uh, of the the Ashta makes it a little easier to understand. So occasionally I'll refer to that text too. Uh, so let's begin with the title, um, the Ratnaguna Samchai Gata. Uh, Gata uh, is verse or verses. Samchai is uh, collection. Uh, Ratna means quality. Uh, sorry, Ratna means jewel, um, as in tree Ratna, the three jewels. Uh, it means jewel, and therefore it means very, very valuable, very precious. And Guna means quality or virtue. So, um, Shuddhapa has translated the Ratnaguna Samjaya as the collection of verses on precious qualities. Um, it also has a fuller title, the Pragnya Paramita Ratnaguna Samjaya the collection of verses on precious, the precious qualities of 
the perfection of wisdom. More about the perfection of wisdom tomorrow. All I need to say now is the Ratnaguna Samshayagata is a wisdom text. It doesn't go into ethics, doesn't go into meditation, doesn't go into spiritual friendship, doesn't go into anything else except the perfection of wisdom and the people who have realised the perfection of wisdom. So that's an introduction to the text. Um, Oh, I should just say one more thing, that both the Ratnaguna and the Asta are very early Mahayana texts, some of the earliest texts. Uh, the Asta has recently, a copy of the Asta has recently been found somewhere in the East. I was trying to get a bit more specific this morning, but I was unable to log on uh, to find out. But um, uh, um, in the first century Christian era, um, we got a letter from uh, Sargamati recently telling us, I think he said uh, the year 47 for the Ashna. So that's really, really early. That's a very early Mahayana text. And which means if the Ratnagun and Samjayagata became bef- came before the Ashta, that means it's an extremely early Mahayana text. And it's worth remembering that because those of you who are familiar with Mahayana doctrine, Sometimes you, you have to be careful not to read the doctrine, all the Mahayana doctrine that you know back into the text, because some, probably the text appears earlier than some of the Mahayana doctrine that you know. So it's very early, and it's really a very simple text. Although some of you, I saw some of you reading it this morning, and you'll realise, although it's simple, it's not easy to understand. It's quite a hard text to understand, in fact. So let's begin... It begins with uh, an opening reverence, really, homage to all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. So immediately that tells us we're in the land of the Mahayana. Um, because in early Buddhism, in Pali Buddhism, Nikaya Buddhism, you only just get the one Buddha and the one Bodhisattva. Uh, the one Buddha Shakyamuni, and uh, the Bodhisattva was him before he was enlightened. He was a Bodhisattva before he was enlightened, but there's only one in the Pali Canon. In late Pali Canon, you get a few more, but uh, in the past. But here, it's in the present. Homage to all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. What a Bodhisattva is, we'll find out in the third talk. And it said, he, then it begins, once at a suitable time, the Blessed One, the Blessed One is Bhagava, which is the Buddha, spoke the following verses to the four assemblies. The four assemblies are uh, monks and nuns, or bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, and um, laymen and laywomen. He did this to encourage them in their practice by illuminating the perfection of wisdom. By illuminating the perfection of wisdom. I'm going to say more about that a bit later on in my talk, but That is a wonderful word, illuminating the perfection of wisdom. So, on to the first verse. Now, the first verse has become famous in our movement. Um, Everyone knows the first verse. Anyone who's been around for any number of years knows the first verse. They've heard it, and some people know it off by heart. And we know it in Edward Conza's translation. 
So I'm going to read you Edward's Conzer's translation because um, that one was used in the advert for the for the retreat, and maybe it was because of the advert for the retreat that you came on the retreat. You thought, oh, that sounds interesting. So I'm going to read that to you simply as a kind of recognition of our history, Tree Ratna history, because we've grown up with this version of it. So, call forth as much as you can of love, of respect, and of faith. Remove the obstructing defilements and clear away all your taints. Listen to the perfect wisdom of the gentle Buddhas. Taught for the wheel of the world, for heroic spirits intended. For heroic spirits. I think that's the name of this retreat, isn't it? Heroic spirits. Shura is the Sanskrit. So, here is Shraddhapa's translation. Arousing yourselves the highest kind of love, reverence, and serene faith. Renounce the impurities of the hindrances and the defilements and be at peace. Listen to the perfection of wisdom of the gentle ones, set forth for the benefit of all and practised by the heroic. So I'm going to spend quite a lot of time on that verse because it's a really important verse. It's the very beginning of the sutra. Um, so, arousing yourselves the highest kind of love, reverence and serene faith. Vara, prema, gauravu, prasadu. Vara is excellent and therefore the highest, the most excellent kind of love. Prema. Now this could be a surprise to some of you. The Pali is Pema. And you may, have, you may associate Pema with a negative mental state. Uh, in the Brahma-Vihara's teaching, for instance, the, the near enemy of Metta is Pema. So Metta is universal love for all, unselfish love in a way. Pema is its near enemy. It looks like it, but it's not the same. It's, of course, selfish love. It's a, it's a love that wants something back. Uh, in the old days, where there was a phrase that we used to use a lot, it's sticky affection. You know that kind of love for someone where you want something back? That kind of sticky love. So Pema is often tran- uh, compared, contrasted with Metta. Uh, but here, obviously, it doesn't mean that. Which just goes to show that Sanskrit, like all, uh, all languages, just like the English language, a word can mean a different thing in a different context. Just like our word love. Uh, our word love means something really, really positive, but it also can mean something very selfish. So, prema is a very good word for that. So, love, the highest kind of love. And there's a, there's an interesting sutta in the Sutta Nipata, a very early Pali sutta called, um, can't give you the Pali, but it's called something like failure or downfall. And uh, it contrasts two things. The Buddha contrasts two things. He, he says uh, that the person who loves the Dharma succeeds and the person who hates the Dharma fails. So love of the Dharma there in the Pali is even more shocking than Prema because it's Dharma Kama. K-long-A-M-A, Kama, which is usually understood to be sensuous desire. So you have to have this sensuous desire for the Dharma. 
And the opposite of that is seti, hatred for the Dharma. So if you have this desire, this love for the Dharma, then you will succeed. Um, uh, I was just going to say something about that, and it's just gone out of my head. Uh, anyway, you get, you get the idea. To love the Dharma. Ah, that's it. It's as if the Buddha's saying, because he uses the word karma a lot in a negative sense to mean sensuous desire, and if you follow your sensuous desires, you are not going to gain enlightenment. In fact, you will suffer. It's as if he's using that very strong word and said, look, just imagine all those things that you've desired in your life, all those things you've longed for and worked for. Just imagine if you had that kind of desire for the Dharma. That's what we really need. So this love, this highest kind of love, I think is directed at the Buddha and the Dharma. If you love the Dharma, if you love the Buddha, then you will grow, you will develop. And that's one of the things I think we really need to try to bring about in ourselves, just learn how to love the Dharma. My great friend, my Vajra brother, Papan Vajra, if you know him, you will know that he loves the Dharma. He loves the Buddha and he, he loves Sangrakshita. His love is very, very clear to see. And he is a fount of inspiration. He's, he's an amazing guy. So, Vara Prema, the highest kind of love, Gauravu, um, uh, which uh, Shuddhapa translates as reverence, um, which is the same as in the Pali Sutta, the Gaurava Sutta, Gaurava, reverence, and uh, it's connected with the word guru. Um, so, Gauru means weighty, and therefore significant, of great significance. So, you're just about to be told something by the Buddha, which is really weighty. It's of great significance to you and all beings. So we need to look up to it. We need to have great reverence for it. So arousing yourself reverence for that which is of great significance for you and the whole world. Gauravu. And finally, Prasadu, which um, Chodapa translates as serene faith. Um, Prasadu is one of those Sanskrit words which means so many things. It's an incredibly positive word, prasadu. I'm, I'm saying prasadu, that's how it's written in the, the, uh, the sutra. And it's a Buddhist hybrid Sanskrit in the sutra, not classical Sanskrit. And I think in classical Sanskrit, it's prasada. Actually, this is one of the words, yeah, he's nodding. I had a whole lot of things in meditation I was going to ask you about, and when I met him, I forgot them all. But anyway, I, he's here, so I can just ask him as we go. So, um, yes, prasadu means faith, and it also means serenity, tranquility, and therefore very often translators in common with prasad, uh, with Shuddhapa translate prasada as serene faith. But it means other things as well. It means uh, clarity, lucidity, brightness. Um, it means happiness as well. It's a kind of happiness. And it means aid and mediation. It means all of these things. So it's a very difficult word just to translate into one or two words. So um, I guess Shuddhapa had to make a decision which one he was going to use. But uh, it also means humour, actually, which is quite interesting, isn't it? Um, 
So just imagine this, if we'd, if we'd translated Prasada in one of these other words, arousing yourself, the highest kind of love, actually prema can also be translated as affection. So, translating, uh, arousing yourselves, the highest kind of affection, reverence, and humour, or clarity, or brightness. Uh, well, I don't know. Anyway... But anyway, we've got serene faith, which is very, very good. Arousing yourself the highest kind of serene faith. And then, the next line is, renounce the impurities of the hindrances and the defilements and be at peace. So, the the hindrances, many of you know the hindrances, but some of you may not know them, so I'll just quickly run through them. They're hindrances specifically to meditative absorption, to jhana. They're the five um, mental states which prevent you from entering into a high state of consciousness, into jhana. And they are sense desire. So that's the first one, sense desire. And then uh, aversion or um, not wanting, uh, sometimes is translated as hatred or ill will. Then the third one is restlessness and anxiety, or restlessness and remorse. Sometimes remorse, a feeling of remorse, prevents us from uh, concentrating our mind. And then fourth one, um, usually it's translated as sloth and torpor, but that was translated 40, 50 years ago. Whoever says sloth or torpor these days, most people don't even know what those words mean. It means dullness and sleepiness a kind of dull state mentally and a sleepiness physically you know that one when you're trying to meditate and the fifth one is doubt and indecision obviously the opposite to uh, prasadu so those five hindrances prevent us from entering into jhana and it's through jhana that we gain insight so that they really block us uh, sometimes they call the obstructions, the five obstructions. So renounce those, let them go. And then uh, the next one is the defilements, which are the kleshas. And there are different lists of kleshas, but you could just say all negative mental states based on greed, hatred and delusion. So the first line is all about what you need to arouse in yourself to develop. And the second line is what you need to eradicate, what you need to get rid of. And then finally, and be at peace. Because if you've got rid of the hindrances, and if you've got rid of the glaciers, then the result of that is peace, shanti. Hence the final few words, the final three words of the, of the puja, the sevenfold puja. Shanti, shanti, shanti. Uh, that's what happens if you really get into the puja or meditation. So this is what you have to do before the Buddha will teach you the rest of the sutra. You need to get into this state, you get, need to get into a really positive state. And it's really good to remember this, because for any Buddhist text that you read, or listen to, or any study that you do, you first of all need to prepare yourself. This is the essential preparation of the mind for the arising of wisdom. How does wisdom arise? Well, you need to get your mind into a good state first. Otherwise, it will just be words. You will understand it intellectually, but it won't really affect you deeply in your heart. So in order for this text to really go in 
and change you for you to gain insight first you need to prepare yourself you need to uh, develop love faith reverence clarity purity of mind purity that's another one that I forgot with Prasadu purity uh, you need to let go of the five hindrances and the all negative states for now so that you can really listen to the Dharma now this puts me in mind of a, another number of texts from the Pali Canon where the Buddha gives what's called the graduated discourse I don't know if you've heard of this the graduated discourse this is where the Buddha meets someone usually for the first time so he's teaching them the Dharma for the first time and uh, so what he says in the text is first of all they just exchange pleasantries they say hello, get to know each other a bit and then the Buddha begins to teach and what he does the text is very specific about what he teaches to someone for the first time he teaches generosity and the benefits of generosity he teaches renunciation and the benefits of renunciation and he teaches the practice of ethics and the benefits of the practice of ethics which is to be born in the world of the gods so that's what he teaches them and he only teaches them that until he sees that they are ready to hear a wisdom teaching and he'll only go on to the wisdom teaching if he sees that they are ready and the text is very specific about what that means so ready is kala k-a-l-l-a for those of you who are taking notes kala chitta c-i-t-t-a chitta is mind or heart it's your interiority your mindset and kala simply means ready or prepared so when he saw that the person's mind was ready or prepared he would give them a wisdom teaching and then the text is very specific about what that ready mind consists of it consists of four things and the first thing is mudu chitta m-u-d-u mudu chitta now mudu is a wonderful Pali word and I was very very happy when I went to the Essence Centre late last year to meet our first ever order member with mudu in their name I've been thinking for decades why doesn't someone call one of our order members Mudu it's such a brilliant name but now we've got Mudukar in Essen just recently ordained and Mudu means soft tender so what this means is that Buddha is teaching this person and then he sees that their mind has softened yeah uh, it's become tender it's become you, it's often translated when you see you'll, you'll find it if you, if you go through the Pali Canon you'll see this again and again that the, the person's mind the listener's mind was made pliable or malleable or, or workable that's the usual way it's translated malleable Able to, you're able to shape something it's a bit like a potter with the clay it's soft and wet so they can, they can make it into any shape they want it's malleable, it's workable, pliable so when the Buddha sees that, that, person, that his listener's mind is pliable I take this to mean that they're now able to take 
what the Buddha said. They're able to receive it, rather like the wax impress of a seal, you know, the, the, the kingly seal. Uh, you, the wax was on the paper and then the seal, the stamp came down on top of it and it would only take the impress of the seal if it was soft enough. So, um, similarly, the, the person's mind needs to be soft enough to take the new impressions that the Buddha's giving them of what life really means. I would say impressionable, except that gives the impression of someone who's really gullible and silly. But really, impressionable is a good word. You, you're able to take the impress of the Dharma into your mind. In other words, your mind is not hard. It's, you, the, the Dharma's not bouncing off. You sometimes get this with people who have come to a Buddhist centre. They're, they're full of um, problems with what you've just said and questions. and you, They're not really listening. They're just bouncing off them. So you need to talk and talk and talk until you get someone into the state where they're really listening. So mudu chitta. And the next one is ninivarana chitta. So uh, nivarana is obstruction or hindrance. So we've got nivarana again. Ni nivarana. Ni is not. So no, no hindrances. Um, some translators understand this as the five hindrances have been suppressed for the time being. Then they're, they're not um, uh, currently in that person's mind. So some translators say free of the hindrances, but others just take the word itself nivarana as obstruction. So. Ninivarana chitta, a mind unobstructed. Not obstructed by ideas, not obstructed by um, not really wanting to know. You could say what this really means is uh, not defensive. So if, if muda chitta means receptive, you could say ninivarana means not obstructed, um, oh, uh, not defensive. Or you could take it as mean no hindrance is present. So, in other words, a positive state. And when you, when, when, if we take it that way as no hindrance is present, what that means is the the person's mind is buoyant. And the next word, the next aspect of this really expresses that. And the next word is udaga, u d a double g a. I just realised I didn't spell ninivarana for you, but never mind, it's gone now. Come back to it later. Uh, Udiga, U-D-A-G-G-A. Udiga means, means high and therefore exalted, elated. The person is now, the person listening to the Buddha is now really inspired. They're elated. They're having a great time. And this goes along with the idea of the hindrances aren't present. Because if the hindrances aren't present, you're either in access concentration or you're in the first dhyana. And so this person is probably hovering somewhere around first jhana now. So they're really listening, they're really concentrated, they're really listening to the Buddha and they're inspired by what he's saying. And finally, the fourth aspect of the Kala Chitta is Pasana Chitta. And Pasana is very similar to Pasada, which is the Pali equivalent of Prasada. Prasada, it's a very, very similar word. It means more or less the same thing. Often translated as serene faith, or devotion, uh, it means um, pure, uh, clear, bright, all of those things. 
you have to remember that now you know that this person has been listening and talking to the Buddha for a long time, and they're now inspired and delighted, and really listening. They're having a, a proper conversation. So now they're beginning to have some trust in this man who they've never met before. They're beginning to trust him. They're beginning to have some faith in him, some devotion in him. And then, when the Buddha could see that that person was in that state, he then gave them a wisdom teaching. Maybe conditioned co-production, or the three lachanas, or the four noble truths. It was only then he gave them the wisdom teaching, and invariably the Dharma eye would open in them. They would gain deep insight as a result of that. So it's really, really important, this this idea of the Kalachitta. And this is what the first two lines of the text are pointing to also. They're very, very similar. A little bit different, but very similar. And I think what they both of them point to is the awakened imagination. I think what all these qualities point to is the awakened imagination. And as Sangrachta has said on numerous occasions, it's the faculty of the imagination that perceives reality, that perceives the way things are. So um, this is all about the preparation needed for uh, insight into the perfection of wisdom. I want to go back to this word illuminating now. I promised I would, so I'm going to. Uh, The Buddha did this, spoke the following verses, to encourage them in their practice by illuminating the perfection of wisdom. Now, illuminating seems to me to be a really, really good word. Um, The word we often use in our movement for Vipassana is insight, which is a good translation, insight. Uh, Pasana, uh, which is another word than the one you've just heard, it's a different spelling. Pasana means to see. And vi is a positive prefix, so it means to really see. So insight is a good translation of that. But I think there's a problem with the word insight in our movement, in that it's become somewhat tarnished, if not... Um, it's a word I'm after. Uh, contaminated by modern secular ideas, a secular worldview. And so that we, we, see ins- we see the whole of the spiritual life as understanding, uh, a kind of an understanding, almost a cognitive understanding of things. But it's not that, of course, it's not that. Um, and I think illumination is a much better word because it's much more imaginative. And I think of uh, illuminated texts from the Christian tradition. I'm sure you've seen them if you go to an old monastery or a museum and you see the Bible open at a page and... There's the writing in calligraphy of the the text, but it's been made beautiful by monks who are slowly and with great pains making the text as beautiful as they can, illuminating it with gold and red and azure blue, making it really, really shine and beautiful. And I think that's what this really means, that the when the Buddha illuminates the perfection of wisdom, he's not telling people concepts. He's awakening our imagination. So we really see reality straight on, not through concepts, in, as we'll see tomorrow. This is what this text is really all about, breaking through concepts into reality. So, that's the first two lines. 
Second two lines of the first verse. Listen to the perfection of wisdom of the gentle ones. Set forth for the benefit of all and practiced by the heroic. But wait, I've just remembered something else about the first two lines. This word prasadu and uh, the hindrances and the defilements. Just remembered. There's another uh, important um, Pali text called The Questions of King Melinda. Uh, so it's the, que- the, the whole text is uh, set up in terms of questions from the king to the Theravada monk Nagasena. It's a very interesting book. And uh, one of the questions is about faith. One day the king says to um, Nagasena, tell me the characteristic mark of faith. And the word for faith here is pasada, not sadha. Yeah, it's pasada. Tell me the characteristic uh, mark of pasada, faith. And Nagasena says, there are two characteristic marks of faith. There's tranquilizing faith and there's leaping faith. Yeah? So tranquilizing doesn't sound very good in our ears. As you, mind you, tablets that people take, tranquilizers, but uh, serene making faith, you could say, peaceful faith, and there's leaping faith, and so the king obviously then asks another question, well tell me about those, so he says I'll, I'll give you a simile, or a metaphor and he says, so the first one for tranquilizing faith is uh, you've got a king and his army, and they're marching across the land, India and they come to a river and they have to ford the river. So, you know, these hundreds, thousands of soldiers go through the river with their horses and their elephants and their carts and their chariots. They all go through the river. They pass on the other side of the river, and then the king decides that he's thirsty and he needs a glass of water. So he says, go and get me a glass of water from the river. And, of course, the river's all churned up with mud now. You can't drink that. So no problem, because the king has the Pasada Mani, which is uh, the uh, water purifying gem. And all you do with this is you just put it into the water and the water becomes clear again. So faith is like the Pasada Mani. It clarifies the mind of the five hindrances. Clarifies the mind of the five hindrances. That's what faith does. That's the tranquilizing faith. So what's the leaping faith? Okay, so Nagasena then gives another simile and it's, it includes a river again but this time the river is swollen it's, um, it's flooded and swollen it's burst its banks and there are people on this side of the river wringing their hands together needing to get to the other side and wondering how they're going to get to the other side and then a strong man comes along and leaps right across in one leap, right across the river, a strong man. And this is the leaping faith, and this is Vipassana, this is insight, this is someone who cuts right through to the other shore in one leap, you could say, it's the leap of faith. And uh, I thought of that, because you've got both of these here in the second line. So at the end of the first line, you've got Prasadu, and then renounce the impurities, the hindrances. That's the tranquilizing faith. And the defilements. And that is the leaping faith, because you only really overcome the defilements at enlightenment. 
So, back to the third and the fourth lines. Listen to the perfection of wisdom of the gentle ones. Set forth for the benefit of all and practised by the heroic. It's very interesting that um, kind of contrast, isn't it? The third line, the gentle ones. The Buddhas are the gentle ones. With, for the benefit of all, and practised by the heroic. So those two very different qualities, gentleness and heroism, are there. And um, why heroic? Well, I'll be talking about that in the second and third talks, probably more in the third talk than the second, what, why it's heroic to practice a spiritual life. But I won't say any more about that now. So this state um, that the, the Buddha wants us to get into is really important. And it's important not just in terms of... Um, understanding a text or listening to a teacher but it's also important in terms of our own spiritual life you could say if someone gives you a teaching or you read a teaching by the Buddha or some other enlightened person and you don't gain insight it means you're not ready that's all it means you're not ready to gain that insight at the moment so the whole of the rest of your spiritual life consists in Kalachitta, in trying to get the Kalachitta, trying to get yourself ready so that when you do hear the Dharma, it really goes in and it changes you, you gain insight. And a lot of the time we hear the Dharma, it doesn't really change us. It's interesting and we gather information, but it doesn't really change us. But the point of it is to change us so that we, we really change, we gain deep insight. So if you haven't gained insight on listening to a text or a talk or reading a text, it means you're not ready which means the rest of your spiritual life is getting ready to gain insight. So that's what meditation is all about. Meditation, the reason we meditate every day is because we're readying the mind to gain insight. And that's why we come on retreats. A retreat is all about kalachitta, it's all about readying the mind, get, getting in something like this state, uh, in order so that we can gain insight. That's what it's all about, that's what the spiritual life is, basically. Getting ready to receive insight. Okay, that's just the first verse. And there are something like 33 verses altogether of this first two um, uh, chapters of the Ratnaguna Samchai Gata. Obviously, I'm not going to go through every verse like that because that would take us about a month to go through. And there's no need to anyway. But this verse is really, really important. I really wanted to unpack this verse and make it clear to you the importance of it. I'm going to take the next three verses together and then we'll finish. So then he says, The rivers that flow through the continents of Jambudvipa bring growth to fruit, flowers, herbs and trees depend on the power of the Lord of Serpents the ruler of the Nagas, who dwells in Lake Anavatapta. Actually, I'll just stop there, just to let you catch up a bit on some of the imagery here. The continent of Jambudvipa is basically a mythicalised India. It's the way they understood 
the land that they lived in because, of course, they weren't scientifically minded two and a half thousand years ago in India, so everything was myth. So it's the kind of myth of the land of India, which I won't go into now, but jambu is, um, is a tree with a fruit, and uh, jambu can either refer to the fruit, which is often translated as rose apple, or it refers to the tree. So it's, Dvipa is island, so it's the island of the rose apple tree. It's a kind of mythicalized India. Um, yes, and uh, Lake Anavatapta. Uh, Lake Anavatapta, uh, it, it means, Anavatapta means not hot and therefore cool. I prefer the Hindu uh, title of the lake, which is Manusavar. And uh, Savar or Savara means lake or large pond. And Mano means mind. I love that. It's the lake of the mind. And uh, you can Google Lake Manu Savara. Uh, if you go to Google Earth and you can see photographs of it, it's a massive, really huge lake, quite high up. Uh, it's at the foot of Mount Kailash and it's very high. And it's unusual for lakes that high to be um, uh, clear water. The other lakes around it are all salt water, but this one's clear, and it's really, really big, and it's very, very beautiful. And um, traditionally, in the, the Indian uh, mytho history of uh, India, you get four uh, big rivers coming from the lake. Um, I just had a quick look at this morning, Buddhist Cosmology, by Randolph Plertsley, just reading a bit about Jambudvipa. Um uh, Lake Anavatapta, whence issue the four great rivers, Ganga, which I presume is the Ganges, Sindhu, Vakshu, and Sila. So these four great rivers traditionally come from this lake. It's not quite as simple as that when you read Google and you find out the modern ge- geographical understanding of it. But we'll stay with the mythical, because this is written at a time when things were very mythical. So... The rivers that flow through this continent of Jambudvipa, bringing growth to fruit, flowers and herbs and trees, depend on the power of the Lord of Serpents, the ruler of the Nagas, who dwells in Lake Anavatapta. A Naga, there's a, a Naga on the mantelpiece of the, the living room there, a little uh, Rupa of a Naga. So a Naga is a mythical creature that lives deep down in the, in the water, and they, um, they're very important for the perfection of wisdom texts because it's understood that the Nagas taught the Buddha the perfection of wisdom. And um, so they're, they're, they're deep, they're deep wisdom. In the same way, the Dharma that the disciples of the victorious one teach, the, co- the coherent explanations they set forth concerning the kind of action that leads to the most noble kind of well-being and the results of this kind of action all represent the achievements of the Tathagata. Tathagata is Buddha. Those who are true disciples of the bull among human beings have practiced the teachings of the victorious one, the guide in the Dharma. They teach what they have practiced and realized. And this comes from the power of the Buddha, not from their own strength and power. So here, you've got in verse 2, 
this uh, this this kind of image. It's interesting. This image comes immediately after the first verse, which is all about awakening the imagination. And then immediately you've got this imaginative image, one of the few imaginative images in the whole text. Very colourful. And you've got the fruit, flowers, herbs and trees growing. It's a really beautiful image. And um, and now I can't remember what I was going to say about that. Never mind. Yes, so in the same way that Lake Anavatapta is seen to be the source of all the rivers that flowing through the mythical land of India, in the same way, the Buddha is the source of the Dharma. You could say that the lake, Lake Anavatapta, is the Dharma. The ruler of the Nagas is the Buddha. And the rivers are the teachers of the Dharma after the Buddha flowing through the land of India. And, um, of course, uh, the early, well, all Mahayana texts, they had a problem of authority because the Pali texts were more or less all of them uh, the Buddha speaking. So that was the authority. The authority was with the Buddha. But with the, these, the, the later Mahayana texts, the problem was one of authority. Well, who says you know, what makes you say that? You know, how can we trust you? And so, um, I think this is partly nodding to that problem, saying that don't worry about whether it's the teaching of the Buddha or not. Even if it's one of the Buddhist disciples, that's okay, because they teach what they have practiced and realized, and this comes from the power of the Buddha, not from their own strength and power. So it kind of overcomes the problem of authority, authenticity. But that's only one meaning. Uh, I think there's a deeper meaning than this, a really important one, which is, here I am teaching you the Dharma. But it's not my Dharma. I haven't made this up. I haven't thought it through. Well, I have thought quite a lot of it through, but even the thinking through that I've done, the the chinta, the, the reflection on the Dharma that I've done, has come from my teachers. I've learned how to reflect on the Dharma. I've learned how to practice and reflect and think about the Dharma myself from Sangrakshita and the Buddha. Both of those great teachers, I've learned from them both. So anything that I tell you is not mine. I'm just passing it on. I'm not so much a river as a tiny stream or maybe a a conduit, this tiny little water coming through this tiny little uh, pipe and that's what you're getting. But what you're really getting comes from the Buddha. That's where it's really coming from. And I'm just a, a channel through which it's coming. And it's important to remember that. And teachers, I do quite a lot of teaching people how to teach the Dharma. And it's important to realise it's not you doing this. In a way, what you have to do as a teacher is get out of the way of the Dharma. Don't let your personality be too big and getting in the way of the, the flow of the Dharma from the Buddha through Sankrachita, through you, to other people. It should be open. There should be an open channel. Um, what else is I going to say about this? Oh yes, and uh, comes from the power of the Buddha, the Anubhava of the Buddha, the power, the majesty of the Buddha coming through you. So it's not my Dharma. But you can then, I'm going to finish with this idea, which is that it's um, 
this is actually true of all things. Uh, anything that we that we can give to other people is not actually ours. We've received it from others. How did you learn to speak English? Yeah, you learnt from someone. Someone taught you how to speak English and grammar and all that kind of thing and how to write. Those of you who are writing down some of the things that I say, you learnt to write from somebody. It's not your skill. It's a skill that you learnt from somebody else. How did you learn to feed and clothe yourself from your parents, presumably, or at least your caregivers? Um, your education, anything that you know, any, all the skills that you have... You've been taught by other people. Um, And if we take it even more radically than that, more primordially, um, our body is dependent on so many other things for its existence. It doesn't exist on its own. Uh, We need gravity to hold us down onto the earth. Without gravity, we would not exist. We need oxygen and air. Otherwise, we couldn't breathe. We wouldn't be able to live. We need water to keep us alive. As we know, we need food. We need all of these things. So I think, uh, although this is very specific, it's all about teachers and the Buddha, it actually points to a much broader and very important truth. In fact, it's it's pointing to what's often called the Anatta doctrine, uh, the no-self doctrine. It's it's not really a doctrine, it's wrong to call it a doctrine. But the idea of no-self doesn't mean that you don't really exist. Of course you exist. There's no question of that. We all exist. That's absolutely certain we exist. But we don't exist independently. We only exist because of causes and conditions. We, we only exist because of our mother and father. And gravity. And food. Nutrients. And water. And air and oxygen, without these things we wouldn't exist. So we're, we're kind of caught in a web of conditions. And the, the kind of person you are is all down to other people. Everything that we are is down to other people. The kind of person we are is because of the kind of people that we've been brought up by. And everything we've learned is down to other people. We've learned it from other people. We're radically dependent on the world, but also on other people. And that's what the no-self doctrine really means. We are dependent on others. And what this means is if you really understand what the no-self doctrine is pointing at, you'll be grateful. You'll be really grateful. You'll be grateful that there is such a thing as the world and gravity and that there is such a thing as life on this world. There aren't many planets with life on it. We should be grateful for that. We should be grateful to the earth for sustaining us. And then we should be grateful for anyone who's looked after us in the past when we were young. Our parents or other caregivers, maybe uncles and aunts, maybe our brothers and sisters, if they did look after us, they don't always. Um, And then our, uh, our educators, the people who educated us, taught us how to speak and listen to English and understand what it means and the, you Germans and Greeks and uh, French your own language but you must have learned English somewhere along the line so you can be grateful to whoever taught you English and then a bit closer to home your teachers, your spiritual teachers those who taught you the Dharma you wouldn't know the Dharma without those you're dependent on those people it's only because of those people that you're able to practice 
So what that means is when you really uh, go deeply into this, then you understand what the no-self so-called doctrine really means. It doesn't mean you don't really exist. You exist, but you exist dependently. You're dependent on other people. And we're going to finish on that note because it's really, really important that not only am I able to teach you because of Sangrachta and the Buddha and other people who've taught me, it's just coming through me. Everything I am has come from other people. And what that means is that when you really reflect on this, you realise that the self, the so-called self, the person that you are, exists. But it exists in this network of connections, which is really, really important. So uh, I mentioned... um, uh, uh, What's the thing I just mentioned? Um, Begins with G. Gratitude. Gratitude seems to be the the natural response to realising that you are dependent. You're dependent. And this brings me finally to the Sangha. One of the things we're doing on this retreat is we're living as a community. And as you know, this is really, really important in our movement that Sangha as practice is a really important principle. We, we don't just practice in the same room. Our practice depends upon one another. And when you realise that, when you realise the enormity of that insight that our practice is dependent on others, then not only gratitude but also faith arises. A great faith. And you really kind of understand that everything is dependent. Everything is dependent on other things for its existence, including us. And so the practice of Sangha becomes a practice in overcoming self-reference. Self-obsession, you could say. The idea that the self is somehow independent and can manage on its own. This is just an illusion. And... The, the so-called no-self doctrine is pointing of, at that and the practice of Sangha is our way in our movement of really realising that. You realise it in a really uh, mm, experiential way by just giving yourself to the Sangha. And one of my practices these days is just to give myself to the Sangha. Um, Sometimes I'm asked to give a talk or something at another centre and I go there and they, they say, well, how do you want to do this? Usually, you know, they tell them, usually we start at seven and then we meditate till half past seven and then, then you give a talk and then you, usually the talk's about half an hour, but how do you want to do it? You know, you could give a talk beforehand or you could give a longer talk and I just say, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. If you want me to give a talk at eight o'clock for half an hour, I'll give a talk for, at eight o'clock for half an hour. Let's not make things really complicated. So just giving yourself up to the Sangha is a really, really important practice and highly effective. And it's the way, the most uh, effective way that I know of realising the so-called no-self doctrine. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. 
please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 